Well, I'm delighted to be joined this afternoon by an economist from the Ludwig von Mises Institute, Robert Murphy. Robert, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, the Ludwig von Mises Institute are champions of what's termed the Austrian School, which is very dear to my heart from uh, quite a number of years ago. My, my initial introduction to this, which is in the early days of the internet, and there was very little information, I was told almost like secretly there are three types of economics. There's Keynesianism, there's the Chicago School, and there's the one that no one talks about. It's called the Austrian School, and that's the one that you need to understand because that allows you to make decisions. So when I went hunting for this, I ended up listening to lectures from a guy with a very thick Eastern European accent lecturing at the American University in Bucharest. And that's all I could find at that point. This was before the Mises Institute came along. Um, and I found it a, a, a revelation. Here's this, here's this man talking about things like, well, there's borrowing based on, on saving, which is a good thing, and it's borrowing based on nothing. Nada, which is a bad thing, and it explained exactly why, and it made sense. And it was a, it was a wonderful moment because I studied uh, university economics as part of an engineering course and learned all the stand, standard Keynesian stuff. And, and none of it was usable. None of it made sense. None of it really resonated. And then came the Austrian school, which for me was uh, a, a huge um, intellectual revelation. So, uh, Bob, I suppose a good place to start this is how did you discover Austrian economics? Okay, well, sure. And just to clarify for your listeners, of course, the, the Austrian school is named that because the founders happen to be from Austria, you know, in the 1800s. But uh, nowadays, like I'm an Austrian economist and you can tell from my accent, it's not because of ethnicity. Um, so how did I get into it? Um, my father listened. I don't know if you're familiar with who Rush Limbaugh is or was, but he was a conservative political commentator in the United States on, on radio. My dad listened to him in the car when I was in high school. So that's what started getting me into, into like political issues. And then I just started reading, um, you know, newspaper columns by people arguing about politics, but I found the, the ones I liked the most were the economists. And at that time it was Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. And, you know, that got me into free market economics. And the, I just kept reading in that genre. But as you say, you know, there were different ones like Milton Friedman's a big one, but he's associated with the Chicago school. And I liked him. But the ones that really seemed to drill down into the essence and the fundamentals, and it just made the most sense to me, were those of this school called the Austrian school, people like Murray Rothbard, who's just a very clear writer and just analyze things point by point. And it just you walk away thinking, even if you disagreed with them, he was so clear that it helped sharpen the argument. You understood what the issues were. And um, so that's, so by the, and then I read Mises uh, magnum opus human action when I was a senior in high school, I'm not saying I understood it all, but that book was probably the single biggest influence in terms of my worldview where he just, you know, his approach to this, this is how it's, it's called human action and meaning how is it that, that humans make decisions? How do they make choices? And then that's like the foundation upon which economics is built in, in the Misesian system. And at that point, I knew not only do I need to be an, an economist for my career, but I need to be an Austrian economist. Okay. Um, 
So this, this, I mean, this is the thing that people who are not familiar with this might not realise. In, in in Austrian economics, you read the textbooks and it's all words. There's there's no there's no formula. There are very few graphs, and when they when they occur, they're very simple. And it's all about human action. Um, so just before we move on to more specifics, could you maybe say a few more words about what what differentiates Austrian economics from the standard fare, which is Keynesian, which is um, endorsed by government and tends to be pro-government and looks to government to solve the problems. How does Austrian? How does the Austrian school differ? Well, sure. So maybe first, just to elaborate on that earlier point you just made about you know the mathematics. So, so critics of the Austrian school will say, oh, they're just not very good at math, or they're not scientific or rigorous, and it's just all words, and it's you know it's like it's old you know medieval stuff kind of thing in, in, in their mind. But in the Austrian approach, it's it's not because they're not good at math. You know, I'm pretty good at math. Uh, Ludwig von Mises wrote essays on probability theory. Murray Rothbard, I think, was a statistics major before he switched to economics. So it's you know they're we're able to do math, but it's recognizing the proper role of it. And so it, unfortunately, what happened in the 20th century is a lot of economists saw the success of the physicists and how they had captured the public's imagination and all the smart people were physicists. And so they tried to make economics look like physics by having equations and, oh, you got to make predictions of things. And what Mises would always stress is that you're misunderstanding economics is a science in his view, but it's a special type of science. It's not, it's not history. It's not math. It's not logic. It's not statistics. It's this, its own field. There's a regularity or a pattern in market events that, you know, if government regulators try to mess with that, bad things will happen, unintended consequences. But it's it's not the kind of thing you learn by doing repeatable experiments the way you might, you know, learn things about chemistry. So, that, you know, and we were able because we're all humans ourselves, we can understand and think through and understand what motivates us. And that helps us build up this this logic of action that, you know, Mises has in his framework. So that's in terms of, you know, why Austrians don't stress mathematics. It's not because they just don't want to do the math. It's because they think that's misunderstanding. In other words, if you try to model humans as if they're atoms, you it get, leads to bad results. And that just shows like all these central bankers, all these crises that keep happening on their watch, it's showing that you know mainstream economics actually isn't as good as the physicists or the chemists in terms of explaining um, you know their field of study. Uh, and as far as you, you say, it's also true in practice, the Austrians tend to be very skeptical of government intervention, but they're, it's, it's not ideological. Like in other words, they, their science is neutral and they are just saying if, if they impose a really high minimum wage, if the government imposes a really high minimum wage, there will be high unemployment among teenagers. So if that's what you want, then Austrian economics says, go ahead and do that. But it, you know, so it's sort of like an if then framework, but then most people with their normal value scales and, and preferences or moral judgments would say that's why the government shouldn't do these things because we don't want to have a business cycle. We don't want to have high unemployment among teenagers. And that's, you know, those are the predictable consequences of government intervention. Now, you mentioned the business cycle there. And one, one of the things I spent some couple of years re reading quite extensively in Austrian economics when I was personally hit with the business cycle. So 2007, um, 2008, the time it, it, it really started to bite, um, saw so a, a business I was running suddenly go through a 50% reduction in 
orders overnight in August 2008, and it and it didn't come back. And then I had to fight to 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 deal with that. Now, it, what helped personally hugely was I understood that thanks to the work of people like yourself and the the, the theoretical framework that um, Woodrow von Mises had provided and others. I understood the mistakes I'd made. I understood what was happening, and I understood what I had to do about it. And that made a very, a very difficult situation much less um, stressful because there, there was there was no sense of well, I don't understand. There was no sense of being at sea. There was a sense of yes, I see. I've made wrong investments. I see. I've made mistakes. I see. I was responding to market signals that weren't actually real. That were the 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 result of government manipulation in the market. I I understand this, um, and this came from one of the big insights of the Austrian school, which is the whole issue of of the business cycle. And uh, memorably, and I'll probably put a link in, in the show notes to this, uh, covered in a couple of rap songs, which explain it beautifully about how keeping interest rates low and uh, low uh, generates. Uh, malinvestment that eventually has to be cleansed from the economy. The malinvestment's the boom and the cleansing's the bust. Now, it, it, it struck me that at that time, because the Austrians and the Mises Institute in particular had a coherent narrative to explain back in 2008, 9, 10, etc., what was happening, what should be done about it, and why the government response was was harmful, it, that that attracted a huge interest in all things Austrian and Misesian, and um, generated a lot of a lot of traffic and a lot of people going to you for answers. Is that how it looked from your side? Did you see all of a sudden that you were in demand and um, uh, of 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 interest to the general public in a way that maybe hadn't been true before. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and this kind of dovetails with what you were saying that the, when you studied the Austrian school, it seemed like it made sense to you. It was intuitive, uh, as opposed to the stuff you had learned in your formal classes. And so, so yes, after the the crash into well, well, let me just mention this. This might be of interest to your listeners. So, in the fall of two thousand seven. Right. So, you know, a, a year before the financial crisis really hit, um, I used Austrian business cycle theory in the, the article. You know, people can still go see it at, at Mises.org. The, the title is The Worst Recession in 25 Years? Question mark. And so in I think it was October of 2007, they ran the article where I was using standard Austrian business cycle theory to say, look at the Fed during these housing bubble years has had artificially low interest rates for years. This, as you say, this. Um, this gives a false signal. It leads entrepreneurs to make too many investments or to invest in the wrong lines because interest rates serve a, a function in the Austrian approach. And if if the central bank makes the interest rate artificially low, that causes problems. And specifically, it causes this unsustainable boom. And so using that framework, I I looked you know earlier in history and said, how far back do we have to go to see the last time the Fed Inter, you know, intervened this much in the U.S. economy and made interest rates this artificially low, and it was back in the late '70s. And so I said, okay, so back then, what happened? There was the you know awful recession in the early '80s, 
And so I was saying, you know, as of 2007, I think the U.S. is in store for another major recession that's going to be as bad as the one, you know, back in the early. So it was even worse, you know, than than that one. But so my my point being that even though the Austrians don't embrace a mathematical formalism, it does still help you navigate through the real world better than people who, you know, have faulty theories, I would say. So, so yes, to answer your original question, when the crash happened, a lot of people, you know, like, like investment advisors, just regular people, because their, their 401k, you know, the retirement savings accounts in the U.S. got wiped out or, you know, lost half their value in a few weeks. And they wanted to know what the heck had just happened. And they knew that the mainstream economists, the guys at MIT and Harvard, didn't see this coming, right? Like it, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people were completely caught by surprise with this. And so, whereas the Austrians, like, as you say, David, they had a coherent explanation and people like Ron Paul and a lot of other Austrians. So, like I said, I was on record in 2007 warning about these things, but there were other Austrian economists associated like Mark Thornton with the, with the Mises Institute who during the housing bubble years, like as I think in 2006, for sure, maybe even a little earlier, were saying, this is a, this is an unsustainable boom. This is going to lead to a disaster. Peter Schiff is another guy that you know, has, has read the Austrian school and he was on TV. People were laughing in his face. So plenty of Austrians or people who were sympathetic to the Austrian school had warned in real time that this housing market's going to collapse. This is going to lead to a big problem. And so they were vindicated. And then, yes, a lot of people were, I, I was going around giving presentations like PowerPoint shows explaining what the Fed had done. And people would come up to me afterward and say, wow, that's the first time I've heard an economist say something I understood, or I took economics in college and I hated it, but what you just said made total sense. And so that, that is the distinctive feature of the Austrian school that I think it's, it's not just that's relatable, I would say, because it's true. That's why regular people resonate. It resonates with them. Whereas, you know, in contrast, in the Keynesian view, they were saying, yep, right now we're, you know, we had a huge debt problem. And so the solution is for the government to run up even more debt. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so I, the 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 ordinary people do relate to it. Sometimes um, I found that uh, in my own field of engineering, um, there's a there's an unwillingness to actually trust logic and reason when it comes to economics, and this is because of because of the training. Uh, there was a report back in the oh, I think seventies or early eighties that said. Uh, it was into the engineering education in Britain, and I said, well, the, the technical standards are very high, but they don't know enough about economics, so they need to be taught economics. So we all were, right? I, I went in and I sat there and I, I learned all this stuff about uh, the uh, paradox of thrift and mm-hmm. um, a whole lot of other horrible ideas. Now, I was explaining this to a, a very elderly, very distinguished engineer um, of, of my acquaintance about, about uh, all these, all these lies I've been told, and he, he looked at me, what's that? So I told him, uh, and it, is that wrong? Yes, it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Of course it's wrong. If, if he hadn't been told that economics was this complicated, mathematical, unknowable thing, he would have, he was a, he was a clever man, he'd have realised it's wrong. He'd have realised, no, I, I, that can't be right. Um, it just doesn't. It just doesn't fit with human experience that 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 that, that can be right. Uh, so the the relatability of Austrian economics, the fact that it's a pleasure to read. I mean, I remember with not a great deal of pleasure my my reading at university in economics. 
and it was a bit of a chore. And the Austrian information, I, I read for pleasure. I, I read for interest. I read for insight. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's very different for that, that reason alone. It, the, the next thing I want to go on to, though, is post-crash, post the 2008 financial crisis. It's been a very odd time. There have been many odd things happening. And the, the response of the governments uh, and, the, and the central banks has been as far from the Austrian prescription as it's possible to be. And for a lot of years, they seemed to be getting away with it. Did, did this cause the Austrian school any doubt or a difficulty in, in getting the message across? Oh, absolutely. And so, uh, and, and this kind of continues with what you had asked me a few minutes ago about, you know, what was, you know, preferably my phone was ringing off the hook in, two, you know, 2000, late 2008, 2009, lots of people wanted to talk to Austrian. I'm, I'm sure they were talking to other heterodox economists too, you know, like Marxists and things too. Like everyone knew the economic orthodoxy that, you know, the mainstream, the people who are running the central banks, the people at the big schools were totally wrong. Like I said, they, they didn't see this coming. A lot of them to their credit, at least admitted that, yeah, we didn't see this coming, like the, the, the crisis in 2008. And so people were looking for answers and the Austrians were, were popular. So what, what happened is because the Federal Reserve engaged in unprecedented actions, and so did the European Central Bank and the you know, Bank of Japan and so forth, they pumped in unprecedented amounts of money at, you know, at, the, at the level at which the central banks do that and pushed our interest rates down to, to basically 0% in the, you know, the major countries. And so in the Austrian framework, again, if what we were explaining, we were saying the reason you had that, this crazy housing bubble where you know people as, as it kept going on more and more people were saying this these prices aren't supported by the fundamentals this doesn't make any sense this is a speculative boom that's going to crash you know the austrian diagnosis was to say it was the loose monetary policy from the federal reserve during the 2000s where interest rates were held artificially low the fed was pumping in money as you said earlier that you know wasn't backed up by genuine savings that's going to lead to distortions and that's what caused the housing bubble and, you know, just in general, the stock market was pushed up to artificially high levels. And then when the Fed got nervous, they started tightening. And then that eventually made the housing market crash and everything came crashing down. So if that's right, or if at least that's part of the story as to what happened, why was there a crisis in 2008? Then the last thing you would want to do is the various rounds of quantitative easing, right? Because that's just more of the same thing that put us in that situation in the first place. And, and, and so what the Fed did from 2008 onward dwarfed what the Fed had been doing, you know, during the housing bubble years. So we were, the Austrians, like me, were going around telling people what the Fed's doing is the exact wrong thing. They're just sowing the seeds for an even bigger crisis down the road. And as you say, you know, in the beginning, a lot of people were very concerned. They believed us. They saw that. But then because gasoline didn't go up to $5 a gallon, you know, in U.S. dollars, people, they lost interest because they were saying, wait a minute, you led us to believe that when the Fed was pumping in all this money, it was going to make the dollar crash. We were going to see very high prices. Some people were using the word hyperinflation. I, I wasn't saying the word hyperinflation, but I, I was warning that there was going to be high, high consumer prices. And for, as you said, for a few years, that didn't seem to be happening. And so then the Keynesian types who are saying, see, these Austrians, they don't know what they're talking about. 
they were warning about hyperinflation. They said that you're going to have wheelbarrows full of cash, like in you know interwar Germany. That didn't happen. It's not Zimbabwe. You know these guys are idiots. And and then people kind of just went back to their daily lives because and they thought, huh, I guess maybe the Fed can pump in five times as much money and nothing's going to happen. So that's how things were for a while. But now, of course, after the response to COVID and the you know skyrocketing prices, people are starting to wonder. Oh, wait, maybe the Austrians did have a point. Yeah, and, and during that point, I mean, what's the Austrian analysis of why there was that that non-response of inflation and 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 crisis during the money printing? Um, you know, are you pointing to you know specific issues that that explain why? the response was it was so delayed okay sure so and here you know i want to be transparent so the things i'm going to say now i'm only more comfortable in them in retrospect so at the time i was wrong i did think as of like 2009 2010 i thought you were going to we were going to see more expensive gasoline in the next 18 months right and so that didn't happen so what I'm telling you now, it's just me seeing what happened and then trying to figure out why was there the delay. I did not know the delay would be as long as it was. Um, so th there's a lot, a few separate, separate factors going on. So I'll just mention a couple of the big ones. So one issue is that in um, October of 2008, the Federal Reserve adopted a new policy where they started paying interest to commercial banks to keep their reserves parked at the Fed. And so, and that was a brand new policy. So effectively, you know, normally what happens is the Federal Reserve creates what's called high powered money or base money, you know, at a certain level that gets injected and then banks have access to that. And then bank, commercial banks are legally allowed to make even more loans to their own customers with like that new Fed money serving as like the, the base of the pyramid, as it were. And so in practice, for various reasons, partly because, you know, the, the, financial system had just imploded and banks were scared. So there was that element. But then on top of that, the Fed started directly paying banks to say, hey, instead of lending out your reserves to your customers, just keep them on deposit with the Fed. And so part of what happened is the normal response of the system to when the Fed injects new money and then the banks create even more money on top of that, that part didn't happen as much as it would have in earlier periods. So that was one reason that the Fed's actions were somewhat muted, given what else was going on. Um, an, another big thing, though, and I think this is, I, I had given a talk recently at the Mises Institute, and this is the thing that I'm, I was only more recently fully understanding, is that um, because there was the panic in the financial sector, it's, you know, 2008, 2009, people, their demand to hold very liquid forms of wealth increased. And so you can see like even money market mutual funds, those balances were falling, whereas checking account balances, like actual just money in the bank sitting there, not earning any interest, but just being sitting in a, in a bank account, that went up very rapidly. And so um, when you looked at the whole totality of the data, you could see that it, it, was, it was not so much that, oh, the Fed was pumping in all this money and now people have to go spend it. It was more that the demand to hold money went way up because everybody was so panicked. And so I think that partly explains what happened is that, yes, the Fed pumped in a bunch of money, but because the public was so panicked, they were just hanging on to it as, a, as opposed to just spending it. Whereas we saw more recently, you know, in the response to the COVID lockdowns, the Federal Reserve also pumped in even more money 
And then once the economy started opening up and consumers could go back to the stores and spend, now we see, you know, spending took off. So because now people aren't so panicked about the financial sector and so they're not hoarding the money, it's just, you know, now they're spending it. So I think that's partly the, the distinction between the two periods and why when the Fed pumped in a boatload of money in 2009 and forward, it didn't lead to a rapid increase in prices. Whereas more recently at 2020 onwards, the Fed pumped in a bunch of money and it did cause the sort of textbook response. And I think it's again, because the, the panic in both situations had a different nature. And this time around, people were more likely to just go spend the money. Yes, uh, that, that's a very good point. I mean, I remember after 2008, um, there, there was a lot of caution. Everywhere there was a lot of caution. Um, when COVID came along and our government closed down basically the entire economy or most of it and said, it's okay, you don't need a real economy. We'll just create money and, it, and give it to you. It's the same thing, really. You don't need to be making real goods and providing real services. Um, we'll sort everything for you. And, and I was looking at this, you know, from an Austrian perspective and thinking, well, I know where this is going. Um, and then when the, when the restrictions started to come off, um, I was looking at the UK um, markets and we were seeing, well, in fact, whilst we were still having something like a quarter of the workforce was on furlough, was actually being paid by the government to do nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a house price boom. And, and it, was so, it was so rapid that, that houses were, were going for 10, 20, 30% above asking price in days. It, it, was, it was febrile in a way that even 2007 hadn't been. It was, mm -hmm. it was insanity. But at that point, there seemed to be the belief that, and after two years of propaganda, a very well-ingrained belief, that the government defines everything. And they say this is going to be fine, therefore it'll be fine. No worries. Worries were banished. Caution was banished. And we were off to the races. And um, yeah, here we are. With uh, advertised or uh, predicted inflation in the UK now looking at eighteen percent next year, uh, so uh, wow. back to the back to the seventies. Yeah, well, I know um, that you you guys over there have your energy prices in particular, and, and I know that you know Putin and so forth that has some influence. But yeah, the the statistics I'm seeing for you guys it's it's really incredible. And, and you're right that's that's another element in terms of the difference between the two periods because there were the lockdowns. Um, you're right that that really and, and this is another reason that the Austrian school I would argue is just a better approach than the other rival schools is because in the Austrian framework you had this rich what they call the capital structure so they you know the, there's different sectors of the economy and goods in, in process and there's time lags whereas in some of the simpler Keynesian models or even Chicago school models it's a very aggregated approach where, oh, there's just labor and capital and they get mixed together. There's not like different sectors and different goods that have a lifespan and things like that. So in reality, when they had those lockdowns, things didn't, you know, there were still a lot of goods in, in the warehouses. And so it wasn't so obvious right away, but it was only later as people started going back and he had all these supply chain issues to see the consequences of that earlier period, like you said, where the government's literally paying people more to stay home than to go to work. 
So you mentioned you mentioned um, fuel and energy prices. Now, I know this is a, an area that you specialize in. Um, and I was very interested in some of the things you were, you were explaining in, in one of the, the Mises University lectures, lectures about uh, the economics of uh, climate change or man-made global mm -hmm. warming, as we used to used to call it when we were all naive. Um, <laughs> so this 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 is an area that you've uh, you've studied a lot. So perhaps you could outline just a few of the main points that you've you've discovered as to what the economics of climate change actually are. Okay, sure thing. And and so you know, based on your sort of wry observation there, where you said, "Gee, we used to call it global warming. Now they call it climate change." And I agree with you know what I assumed your point was that they had to do that because they realized, oh, if we ever have a stretch, and they did have this, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, where global temperatures flatlined for a while. Uh oh, now it looks like there's no more global warming, so they had to change it to climate change because the climate's always changing. They can always point to some, you know, tornado somewhere and say, "See, it's climate change." Um, so what, what I want to say though, to your listeners is that even though it is true that a lot of the, um, you know, when, when people say, oh, you just got to look at the science, even though it's true, a lot of that they're misrepresenting what the, you know, actual science says in terms of, uh, you know, the weather patterns and things like this, that a lot of the predictions or, or, you know, scare, uh, statistics that are thrown out, even though those aren't based on that. As an economist, I just went in and looked at the actual literature of the economics of climate change, and I didn't go to like right-wing conservative institutes like the Heritage Foundation or you know other other right-wing groups. I just read the UN's own reports. I just studied the model from William Nordhaus, who's a Keynesian, and he won the Nobel Prize for his work on the economics of climate change. Right, so this is you know mainstream. The 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 people that are published in the UN's own documents. That, that summarize the science and economics of climate change. And none of that stuff supports, for example, the, the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal that you know, is, is underlying the Paris Climate Agreement, for example. William Nordhaus's model, again, this is the guy, this isn't an Austrian, this isn't some guy who hates the government. He's a Keynesian, he won the Nobel Prize. His model shows that if humanity tried to impose measures to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the economic costs of that we, you know, would hurt humans more than if the governments did nothing about climate change at all. That's how disastrous and draconian that limit is. And yet, you know, climate activists report that as if, you know, oh, if, if we could just get enough political will, we would do this, but we can't. So let's maybe hope for two degrees Celsius. So, so that's what I'm, I'm trying to get across to your listeners is when you get into this literature, you'll see the actual published stuff that even the UN admits is the cutting edge, you know, consensus among the people who study these things. Doesn't it all support what the activists are saying, you know, this is what governments ought to shoot for. And so there's this huge chasm between what the published peer reviewed research actually says, and then what, you know, activists and governments are trying to do. So it's, it's this Orwellian world where, you know, when you actually know the literature, what people are reporting as quote the science is totally wrong and again you know i'm an economist so i'm not even getting into the stuff about well you know is it is it maybe more the sun than it is co2 and and i i've read that stuff and i'm you know i'm fascinated by that debate but i'm saying even if the un's you know the people speaking on behalf of quote the science were completely right about the chemistry and physics and you know the the um in terms of atmospheric conditions still in terms of government policies 
and what's recommended that it doesn't at all dovetail with what the literature actually says. The stuff that climate activists are pushing would make humans far worse off than even just unrestricted climate change if governments did nothing. Yeah. And, and the, the strong suspicion that we have is that that is actually the point, that making humans worse off, because when you dig down into the roots of this, and this is a lot of what the UK column does, Mm -hmm. What comes out is a is a profoundly anti human, uh, anti human thriving philosophy. It seems to love death and destruction, and it's it's very dark. And when you dig into the philosophers that that generated this, you know the Derrida's, the the um, uh, Michel Foucault's, the, this sort this sort of uh, thinker that that is actually pushing a lot of what is now the political agenda, uh, who provided the ideas for what is now the political agenda, a lot of it is profoundly anti-life. And therefore, we, we see the, uh, what is apparently an illogical um, response to events that doesn't make any sense, not, not simply as error and, and folly, but actually as at least at some level, uh, by some of the people involved, um, an act of uh, malicious, malign intent. And that's what we're, one of the things that makes the UK column maybe um, amongst the, the more radical of, uh, of the news outlets out there is we're willing to discuss mm -hmm. where the malign intent comes from. And it takes us into um, cases where we're discussing, you know, this is a, a spiritual fight that we're in and it's a and it's mm -hmm. a spiritual struggle now well yeah um, if i could just yeah uh, amplify that you're, you're right so it's there, there's um for sure you can easily find come you know coming from their own statements there's plenty of people and i don't just mean you know some random street activist who's marching in a protest somewhere i mean like high level officials at the un or the world bank and um, things of this nature saying openly how oh yes we need to use this climate crisis to you know enact more fundamental reforms to re, you know to change the western way of life to you know to dismantle capitalism so clearly they have you know a broader agenda it's not merely uh oh we don't want the, the globe to be as hot in the year 2100 as it's going to be on its current trajectory like that's not the driving factor and to see some more evidence of what you're saying that oh, for at least a lot of these people it's this rhetoric is just serving as a justification for, for when their you know motives are something else. You can see, like, if, if you genuinely believed that humans were going to be in trouble one generation from now unless we rapidly reduce carbon dioxide emissions, then the clear thing to do would be a huge proponent of nuclear power. Because nuclear power, even though there's some issues with it, that could, you know, if, if, if countries around the world rapidly started building nuclear power plants, you could you know, humanity would not need to have a huge reduction in their standard of living. And that's, you know, zero emissions of, of greenhouse gases. But yet, typically speaking, there's only a very few amount of the extreme activists who are in favor of nuclear. They don't want that either. And so I think that proves it's not really global warming that's the issue, is they don't like capitalism. And then like you say, even more so, a lot of them don't like humanity. Like, you know, plenty of people who are, you know, worried about Mother Earth and her carrying capacity also say, you know, we should we should have the population be 500 million. And so, well, how's that going to happen? Quite. And, and on these um, 
you know, more kind of fundamental ethical and, and, and spiritual matters. Um, but economics is always uh, advertised as value-free, but I think that the, the Austrian school has, has actually started to grapple with it not really being value-free. I'm thinking here in terms of the, the work of someone like the late Gary North looking at the economics of the Bible, um, but also in, in, in the Mises Institute and others looking at simply the, um, the, the, the reality of what government is doing to individual liberty and is doing to the wealth of, uh, of our nations and how much harm is being done. This is this very quickly gets to the point where it's not value free. It's very much a values discussion. Um, where would you say that viewpoint is, or the the values and ethics and um, uh, 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 sort of viewpoint is within Austrian economics? Is it is it heading towards being more uh, value? Um, more sort of centered on values, or is it still trying to um, keep itself, you know, very much uh, we're value free, we're 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 looking mm -hmm. at the facts, and it's for others to make those decisions. Okay, yeah. So th this is a great question, and I know exactly the the tension or the, you know the the issue you're you're pointing at. So let me be like a classic economist and try to say on the one hand, there's this, and then let me give you the other perspective. So let me just to tell, uh, put the, the, the distinction into relief. So the reason Mises argued that economics was value free is because at the time, you know, when economics was developing as a science, the Marxists were coming along and saying, you know, oh, th there's nothing scientific about what they're doing. This is just apologists for the capitalists. And they, they just, you know, they're coming up with arguments to defend, you know, the privileges of the bourgeoisie and so forth and to, to keep the proletariat down. It, this, isn't, this isn't a science the way chemistry or physics is. This is just, you know, apologies for the ruling class. And so that's why Mises was trying to argue that, that, no, this isn't because of my ideology. It's not that I know what the answer has to be and then I work backwards to come up with the argument. This is, you know, step-by-step -step logical analysis. If the government prints money and pumps it in, it will cause this boom-bust cycle. You know, that, that, and that's an objective fact, just like, you know, chemists can say, if you mix these two elements together, this is what's going to happen. It's, it's not based on my view, my preferences or my value system. It's, a, it's just a logical prediction or an empirical statement about what's going to happen. So, th so that's the sense in which, you know, some Austrian economists stress that, hey, our, our field is, is value free. But I understand what you're saying. The danger in that is because so much of economic policy debate and discussion focuses on things where values definitely play a role what what can often happen in practice is that economists will smuggle in their value judgments and present it as if that's you know the result of just a cold-blooded rational analysis and that hey that's science when you know, they've actually smuggled in their value judgments so i agree with you that we need to do a better job of being careful about saying you know where does the value judgment come in and let's make sure that those are good value judgments because in practice yes a lot of economists are, and the, the other issue too is you as an economist, if you're going to work with a regime that's doing evil things, even if you're just giving sort of neutral advice, like, you know, ah, yes, if like, like you can imagine a physician working with someone running, you know, a concentration camp could say, 
well, here's the, the optimal amount of torture you want to do because you don't want to actually kill the slaves. You, you know what I mean? Like you could say medicine is value free there, but clearly something would be warped and disgusting about that. So likewise, if there's economists that advising governments on the, the best way to tax their subjects and so on, and how much inflation can we pump in before we wreck the economy? You know, th those are all value laden activities that economists often do in practice. So I agree with you that there, there does need to be more of a economists need to be more aware of what they're doing and how their field has been, I would say, perverted and being used for, you know, helping evil regimes do things. And, and the, the, the work of Gary North, has that got wider um, play within the Austrian school or is that does that remain very much his um, his his own area of, of interest? Well, so like his specific, so within like, you know, the, the Mises Institute, you know, I had a, a nice relationship with Gary North and, you know, some of the scholars directly associated are very familiar with his work. Um, Sean Rittenauer is another person, you know, affiliated with the Austrian or the, the Mises Institute. And he's written a, a book about, you know, biblical economics. Um, so there are many Austrian economists who are also Christian who, you know, do argue that ones that, you know, the Bible has many lessons on economics and that, you know, there's, there's no contradiction or there's no, um, there, there's no tension between those two things. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, no, that's still, I think, pretty, pretty uh, narrow in terms of the, the influence it's had uh, among even self-described Austrian economists and that, that particular approach. A uh, couple of things to finish, uh, uh, Bob. Uh, firstly, I, I have to mention Krugman. I have to mention Krugman. Mm -hmm. Are you are you are you still are you still steadily stalking him into his into his retirement? <laughs> so yeah, for those who don't know, I um, over the years have often written columns criticizing Paul Krugman, who's like probably the leading Keynesian economist right now. Um, with Tom Woods, I had a podcast called Contra Krugman, where every week we would take his column and, and criticize it. We since have retired that podcast. Um, I don't focus on him as much now as I used to, but yeah, I still like literally just today, I was looking at his Twitter account about the you know student debt relief and he was saying what I thought was not, or not nonsense, but he was misleading people. He was saying true statistics that made it, would lead you to believe one thing when and I had to point out that, no, 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 this is what the issue is. And don't be fooled by, you know, his sort of misleading statistics. So to answer your question, yes, I still do check in with him, but not as much as I used to. And no, no sign of I, him debating you, I take it. Oh, no, <laughs> he, has, he has said several <laughs> times he's not going to give me a platform. Yeah, right. Well, uh, just on a, a final thing, um, I, I hear... I, that there are such things as Austrian economics groupies. And I just want to know, is this true? <laughs> it is, it is true. It's, it's funny that we, at the Mises Institute, for example, every year we have what's called Mises University and all these college students will come, well, sometimes even now high school students will come to just learn about the Austrian school for a week. And they, they come up and do selfies and they, you know, have us autograph books and everything. And I explain to them that, because sometimes the, the students are a, little, a bit timid and they say, is it okay if we take a picture with you? And I say, look, guys, we're not athletes. We're not, you know, movie stars. We're not used to people wanting to take pictures with us. So yes, of course it's okay. So yes, that's a, one of the few times when we feel very special.
Well, this this is a this is the experience we've had at the UK call. We went to a, a protest march in London. Basically, the whole staff went, um, and there was close on a million people in the streets, and it was anti-lockdown, um, anti-vaccine mandate, pro-liberty. So the BBC didn't mention it. A million people marching past their, their, their studios mm. didn't mention it. Uh, and we went there, and basically for three hours solid, all we did was hug people. And um, my, my, my colleague, Mike, even, even was uh, eager to drive by kissing. He still doesn't know who kissed him. He was hugging one person and someone else smacked him right in the, in the cheek, a big kiss as, as she went past. <laughs> and he's no idea, he's, he's no idea who it was. And this is very strange. When you start speaking the truth, it gets, it gets a reaction of, and the people who hear it, of, of affection. Mm -hmm. And it does come out. And it's, it's, it's very wonderful to be on the receiving end when it happens. So long may you have econ groupies, Bob. Yes, it is, it is very uh, encouraging. And, and joking aside, it is, it is exciting to see you know, young people interested in these ideas. And, and as you say, it's because more and more people are recognizing that governments, to go back to what you said earlier, it's not just that they're mistaken and oops, we miscalculated or we had the wrong information that, no, a lot of these policies, it's crystal clear. It, it's being driven not by ignorance, but by malevolence. And, you know, and, and people like your organization, that they need to be speaking out and letting people know this because a lot of other groups, they're afraid to say that. And so just to finish, Bob, uh, for people who want to see more of your work and, and learn more about the Mises Institute, where should they go? Okay, so the, yeah, the, the website of the Mises Institute is Mises.org, and so that's M-I-S-E-S.org is the homepage, and they have all sorts of books and things for free videos, all kinds of material there. Uh, and then my, my personal podcast is BobMurphyShow.com, and that's where you can find all, all about me. And in terms of in terms of reading material, um, I think the place I started when I started to read uh, Austrian economics um, uh, more intensively was Jean Callahan's book, which you'll no doubt know. Mm -hmm. um, is that a good place to start, or is there, is there another primer that you could suggest people uh, pick up? Sure. Yeah, if people want to learn about the Austrian school in particular, yes, Jean, Jean Callahan's book, Economics for Real People, that was. An introduction to the lay reader that's about Austrian economics specifically, not just you know economics. That that's a good one to start with. If you want something that's a bit uh, deeper but still accessible, I have my book that's called Choice that was published by the Independent Institute, and that's sort of like an introduction to the thought of Ludwig von Mises. That's that's harder than than Jean's book. So yeah, for a, a, someone just brand new who says, "What is this Austrian school?" Jean's book is good. Economics for real people, and then. I would say choice, but anything by Murray Rothbard is also very well written, very accessible, and just to to people who just want to dive in and just give it a sample. Anything by Murray Rothbard will work too. Lovely. Well, Bob, thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I hope we can uh, do this again sometime soon, and uh, maybe talk about um, what's on the far side of eighteen percent inflation. Well, uh, hopefully we won't have to talk about that, but I think we may. And, and thank you, David, for having me. And again, just uh, commend you on all the hard-hitting analysis and reporting that your organization is doing. Keep up the good fight. Bob, thank you very much. Bye for now.